Hi there, everyone. Welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Joining me today is Associate Professor David Brewster from Monash University. David is the Deputy Director of Intensive Care at Melbourne's Cabrini Hospital. He's a practicing anaesthetist, an airway management researcher, and a board member of the Safe Airway Society. David is one of the authors of a recently released publication in the Medical Journal of Australia, outlining the latest recommendations for intubation of COVID-19 patients from the Safe Airway Society. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about the Safe Airway Society? Yeah, sure. The Safe Airway Society uh, was established in 2019 after um, sort of wide consultation with the, the stakeholder groups. Uh, where representatives were nominated by each of the major um, organisations, um, such as the specialty colleges and the airway societies across Australia and New Zealand. Um, so there was an original s- sort of signatory group that put out uh, the proposal. It, it was endorsed by all the major colleges and societies, and then they were able to put members on um, the initial stakeholder group to represent them. So the you know, um, uh, ASA or the College of Intensive Care or College of Emergency Medicine, as well as the pre-hospital societies and the other airway groups. Um, And then that led to the formation of a board, um, so trying to keep it as multidisciplinary as possible rather than just a whole group of anaesthetists. So we ended up with a a board representing the major airway clinicians in Australasia and and most of the sort of recognised airway experts. Um, And then that was established last year, set up as an, as an entity and went through all the sort of legal process we had to to get the statement of purpose and the, the goals and the bylaws all sorted out. Um, the first president uh, is an anaesthetist intensivist from Royal North Shore, John Gatwood, that many uh, of your listeners would probably know, uh, who's done um, a lot of research in the airway uh, area over the last decade, uh, as well as members um, uh, from all different states and, and New Zealand uh, and from all the colleges, College of Surgery, and uh, Adam Rehux on the board. He's uh, on the SIG for AMSCO at the moment. Uh, we've also got other people who aren't on the board but are fundamentally part of the Airway Society and were helpful in the initial setup, such as St. Pardon Nick Crimes, um, who a lot of your listeners would know from his work with the Vortex, uh, as well as Chris Nixon, um, uh, who, again, was one of our other authors on the uh, guidelines that were released or the consensus statement that was recently released. So I think um, one of the main purposes for setting it up was for Australia and New Zealand to have one uh, voice in terms of safe airway practices and we could feed into the new uh, principles for universal management of the airway, which is called PUMA, as a lot of your listeners would know, which is looking for sort of universal um, guidelines around airway management so that Difficult Airway Society in the UK and the societies in America and India and other places are all feeding into one entity. The Society has yeah. just released some guidelines um, on the management of airways uh, in COVID-19 patients. Uh, how strong is the evidence yeah. base behind these guidelines at this point in time? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because obviously in terms of specific to COVID-19 patients, it can't be too strong because we don't have – it's largely an evidence-free zone. A lot of the evidence that we're looking at were the early reports, which were observational coming out of China and then more recently Europe. Um, so there isn't strong evidence there. But the evidence that we know looking at staff safety around um, aerosol-generating procedures in pandemics such as SARS was a bit stronger. So some of the guidelines – 
a lot of the discussion when when we uh, put together the statement uh, and the and the recommendations was based on the evidence in the SARS pandemic from you know 17 years ago. Um, we've said, I think, in the document that essentially, you know, we we got the the best evidence we could, and then it was really a collaborative discussion amongst the, the panel of experts. Um, I guess what's not clear in the document is there was a there was a lot of discussion in generation of the statement and the guidelines uh, in as we put them together with ANZICS and uh, ASA and the other you know uh, parties that were putting out guidelines at the same time, but in uh, along, you know, management in intensive care or safe PPE. So we tried to make sure that we we're all very consistent uh, and left each society to speak, to, um, you know, to the area that they were focusing on. We also collaborated with the Difficult Airway Society in the UK as they were putting out a document at the same time. Um, so there was a lot of collaboration going on in the background to make sure that we got the best information, the best recommendations out to the public. Now, one of the major purposes of these guidelines is to protect healthcare staff because of the, the issues with um, uh, or healthcare-related exposure. What do we currently understand about the risks of intubation in healthcare workers? Yeah, that's another excellent question, Todd. We don't understand enough, um, which is why um, Kareem in, in the Difficult Airway Society in the UK has uh, recently put out a a call for everyone to join the Intubate COVID database, which is a, essentially they're running it as a, um, a QI project, but it will be uh, observational data looking at you know, the risk of transmission of infection to the intubating teams. Um, Paul Miles has kindly agreed it at a national level here, um, who many of your listeners would know that runs the anaesthetic department at the Alfred in Melbourne, where we're trying to get all airway clinicians to log all of the intubations that are done uh, for the COVID-19 population. Uh, I did it yesterday when I, uh, after intubating um, uh, a patient with COVID-19 and it, it literally takes 60 seconds just to log the PPE you're wearing and the technique that you use and how many people are in the room. Um, so I think that data over time will give us a much clearer picture. The data from the SARS outbreak is difficult. Um, you know, there are reports um, of transmissions, you know, in some areas, um, and particularly back in, in Toronto, where there was a lot of healthcare-related infections in hospitals, unclear how many of them were related to intubating teams. And then there was um, hospitals in Hong Kong where they had 300 SARS patients uh, and no healthcare worker infections in anyone in intubating teams or in intensive care. So it, it's really hard to know. I guess all we have to go on um, is that we make sure our staff are extremely familiar and well-practiced with the personal protective equipment or the PPE. We're guided by um, the larger institutions in terms of what PPE to wear. So we were very clear in our statement that we're guided by, you know, whether that's the WHO or, or, or more locally in Australia, it's going to be um, the, the DHHS or, or even the ASA and the Australian Society of Anaesthetists to make, and they're all very consistent in their recommendations. Um, but what we say is that we need to make sure you're well-practised and that you're diligent in your donning and doffing so that you make sure that when you go in and out of the room, you're very familiar with the equipment you need to wear to protect yourself and familiar with the processes of safely taking it off at the end. And I think if that's done um, well, we should have some data from places like Intubate COVID uh, in, the, in the near future, which will probably make it a lot clearer, but hopefully that'll be for the next pandemic and hopefully this one will be gone by then. Now, David, you point out in the article that the guidelines for intubation uh, already exist. So what are some of the specific major recommendations that you make as they relate to COVID-19? 
Yeah, that was um, that was something we wanted to make very clear, and I think we that was one of the parts of the of the statement I was probably most proud of the group for doing um, is that we there are generic guidelines for for cutting and oxygenate or, or or the difficult intubation in critically unwell patients, and we've all you know looked at those over the last you know decade. Um, and they should not be; they don't need to be rewritten for this patient group. Um, what we wanted to make sure was that there was a a very universal, consistent approach to the airway of the COVID nineteen group across all specialties: be it ICU, emergency, and, and theatre. Whether it's a sick COVID nineteen patient um, in intensive care or emergency, or, or a well one who just needs an urgent appendectomy in theatre, the fundamental differences are one: minimise staff involved. So we want to make sure that there's only the people in the room who need to be there. Obviously, second um, issues around PPE, so how you you put that on and what PPE you wear. Um, We want to avoid anything that generates aerosol generate in any aerosol generating procedures that may aerosolize, you know, airway secretions or droplets containing virus. So if you think about that from a first principles, you want to avoid coughing. You, you, You want to make sure that you're not running high flow um, flows through the airway when you don't need to be. So little things like um, we're advocating a high dose, uh, one and a half per kilo of muscle relaxant bed sucks or rocuronium to get the, you know, the, the shortest apnea time and allow when you put the laryngoscope in, uh, hopefully there to be no coughing on insertion. Uh, we're advocating against cricoid and, you know, for that reason, for the majority of these inductions. Um, we don't want, well, we, if the patient is safe and pre oxygenated well, and we talk about at least five minutes of pre oxygenation in the sick group, that we should try and avoid, if possible, any mask ventilation. Um, and um, when we use laryngoscopy, and I think this is well known now, you want to maximise the distance of the airway operator from the airway, which would mean uh, we, we recommend the use of a video laryngoscope for all intubations. Uh, which just allows you to then do it off the video. And if you have a straight arm technique, you can maximise your from the airway. Now, one of the issues that you mentioned there was pre-oxygenation. What are the specifics around that in terms of using various devices and techniques? That, that's a really big issue. And the, the sick um, COVID-19 patient that I that I had to intubate yesterday, uh, who is very hypoxic, but once... Um, uh, and I think he was on 15 litres with a Hudson mask, you know, struggling to get sats up to 90% on that. But with the two, two-handed two V group that we talk about in the guidelines, if you can generate a really good seal uh, with your face mask, um, you usually are able to pre a lot better than that. And, and I was fortunate yesterday to be able to get him up to 100%. I know that may not always be possible depending on the degree of lung injury. But certainly you need to pre to the absolute best that you can and you need to be vigilant in how long you do it for. Um, and you need to assess when you're pre-oxygenating that you are happy, that you do have a seal, that you are, you know, that, that the patient is ventilating well as they're pre-oxygenating. Uh, and if not, you need to try and maximise um, that either by ramping them up a bit more or putting in an oro a pharyngeal airway if tolerated. Um, but it is something that you need to be vigilant with. I think we're going to learn a lot more as we go with this patient group. I know there's a lot of uh, collaborative discussion going on, particularly in Europe, a lot of webinars and a, and a lot of you know large um, uh, um, video conferencing going on between intensive cares and emergency departments and the anaesthetists and sharing of experiences. And hopefully... 
some of the observational data over the next few months will be helpful in this space. It may find uh, that new techniques are are added to that that are recommended based on good outcomes. So we wanted to keep it simple and recommend something safe to start with. Um, but we acknowledge that the document is a living document, and you know, in a month or two, uh, if there is uh, new evidence that springs up, then obviously um, that's something that we would we would we would add to the uh, to the statement if, if required. Now, what about um, various techniques such as non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal oxygen, and apneic oxygenation? Where do they fit in, and what are your recommendations about those? Yeah, they're, they're, that's a very good question. Apneic oxygenation, we, we recommend against at the moment, uh, based on the risk of aerosolisation during that time to the people in the room. Um, and high-flow nasal oxygen, I know, is a... The treatment that, uh, as a treatment modality, there is some evidence for, and ANZICs have recommended its use. And we're, we're very um, in the update went on to the MJA on two days or three days ago, just on the second of April. Uh, we've said that you know our recommendations would be to uh, stick with what ANZICs is currently recommending. Um, but from a high flow nasal oxygen perspective. Uh, we understand it's going to be a destination treatment for a lot of patients. It may be a treatment that patients are on on the ward before they are intubated. Um, we we recommend against it for the pre-intubation period as a method of pre-oxygenation, mainly because of the risk to the staff in the room of, of increased aerosolisation. Um, same with non-invasive uh, at the moment. Um, it's not something that we think should be routine. There'll be patients, obviously, that need non-invasive because they'd have a non-invasive type pathology, be it APO or airways disease, and they may become uh, COVID-19 positive. So I think we would be consistent with what ANZIC say, which is to, you know, it's not the routine choice of treatment and we're not recommending it routinely for pre-oxygenation at this stage. One of the other areas that you talk about is the setting up of teams and, and the people within those teams for intubation. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that was one of the things that sets Safe Airway Society apart from a lot of other uh, airway societies, and it's, I think, one been one of the best things I've um, like been most proud of the society is I've got involved and, and looking at all these great clinicians come from these great societies already, from you know ASA and ANZIC and Western Australian Airway and so on that have all put out things along the way uh, about airway practices. But one of the things that the Safe Airway Society has really looked at is the the teamwork and the and the collaborative approach to airway management and the human factors. And I think in COVID-19, that's something that's paramount. We need to make sure that, that a team that's going to be stressed, um, at, at least in the early stage of the pandemic, it's a new illness and people are, are uh, trying to get their head around how to do things safely. One of the things we wanted to target was how to make that team function uh, most efficiently and safely. So give them safe um, practice, give them familiar equipment, ask them as much as possible your procedures and keep it simple. Uh, the overarching principle being that will lead to increased safety. So the team um, that we recommend is really about minimising staff in the room but allowing the most efficient intubation process to occur. So you want the most experienced, best, you know, intubator to um, be the airway lead. You want the most experienced um, other clinician to be the team leader so that the person in charge of um, intubating doesn't have to worry about the induction and can focus solely on a safe intubation for the staff. 
um, and you want a very experienced airway assistant. So it's not the time for the you know the interns and the grad nurse to be you know, in there having a go and learning intubations. It's really the time for the senior staff um, to be doing it, mainly to make the process as swift and efficient and safe as possible. I'm speaking with Associate Professor David Brewster about the Safe Airway Society guidelines for airway management of patients with COVID-19. Just a reminder that you can access this podcast as well as our entire range of procedure and theory modules and a catalogue of other resources at osla.force.com slash COVID, which is all completely free and without registration or login. Other recommendations around the circuit setup in terms of protecting people from from viral shedding, can you tell us what they might be? Yeah, and I think that's one thing that I staff are feeding back is really interesting because it's new to them. So when you imagine yourself, you know, child intubating in ICU over the years, you don't normally stick a viral filter on someone's face mask. You know, you often will stick a you know, little elbow angle and a capnography in the bag and that's all you have. Um, and in a lot of institutions, the capnography doesn't go on even until after they intubate. So what we're advocating is that the viral filter is on um, and the viral filter is, immediately connected to the patient's airway bed, a tube or a, a face mask. And that's mainly so that if there is any expired air that's coming out, that you um, you don't, the room doesn't get uh, a whole um, breath of, of potentially um, viral containing droplets. So those uh, viral filters, depending on which ones, they're, they're pretty consistent, the ones available in Australia, but they tend to filter 99.9% uh, viruses according to the company so we want them on we want staff familiar with their use i think anita just will be more familiar because in theater you know that having a filter on the circuit is pretty common practice but for for people in emergency and intensive care it's new um we're also looking at minimizing the risk of circuit disconnections uh, so keeping it as simple as possible and making sure that that if there is a disconnection the filter stays at the patient David, it doesn't take you very long on YouTube or social media to see a hundred different approaches, including plastic sheeting over the patient's face and boxes and all sorts of things. Um, does the Safe Airways Society have a position on any of these? No, but we have a, a, a strong recommendation that we should be uh, endorsing safe, simple and familiar, reliable and robust practices, which none of, none of those boxes over people's heads would tick any of those boxes, I don't think. Um, no pun intended, but um, I'm not aware of any evidence that they're good. I mean, I, I must admit there are concerns when you have to stick your arms through holes that you're going to rip your PPE and expose yourself, that you can't fit a bougie in there, that, you know, you're going to find it hard to get grip to pre-oxygenate. And if your patient is all agitated, it's, it's obviously a risk to patient harm. Um, so I know that it's something that in a pandemic, there's a lot of panic amongst clinicians and there's a lot of MacGyvering that occurs and people's intentions are very very good but at the end of the day um if this is a, a next few months in australia if this is even rem, you know remotely as busy for the intensive care community as, as has been modeled we there's going to be lots and lots of um urgent intubations that occur and we need to keep the staff safe with you know reliable efficient familiar processes and in looking at some of the stuff on twitter and whatsapp and social media i'm yeah, obviously I'm a little bit concerned about some of the stuff that's thrown up. Um, it's not something that we've endorsed uh, as a group and I don't think it's something the ASA and ANSCA uh, and the College of Intensive Care have endorsed at this stage. 
David, you mentioned earlier that this is a living document. When will these guidelines be updated and how does um, the, the intensive care and other uh, healthcare community get access to them? Yeah, so they're on the uh, MJA free. They're going to stay open access on the MJA uh, website uh, and they are on. They will eventually be on the uh, Safe Airway Society um, website. But on the Safe Airway Society website, you can freely download all of the cognitive aids that we've put together to help with the training. Um, these documents were um, endorsed uh, widely by... Uh, what, the reason we put it together was to have one document for all of Australia, one way of doing it. So we had to make sure before we put it uh, in print and out um, uh, online that we had the support of all the important uh, groups. So um, it's been endorsed by, as you've probably seen online, I think 12 or 13 of the major societies and colleges. And then recently, um, the, the, the collaborative five of the College of ICU, uh, College of Anaesthetists or, or Anesthesia and College of Emergency Medicine, as well as ANZICS and ASA have got together to do the, you know, the five C's COVID collaboration. And they've... Um, they have put uh, the guidelines on their website as well as um, endorsing its use along with the ANZIX guidelines for the treatment of these groups. Um, and I think the ASA one's on, on staff safety and PPE. So they're widely available between those sites. Um, if there is any changes, evidence that springs to mind will change um, fairly immediately, we'll then send all the changes to the endorsing bodies to make sure they're all happy. And the idea would then be to put it out on our website as a live document. We'll just go through the process with the MJA um, over the coming weeks on, on how we get, we're able to do that. David, I'm sure all of the, um, the acute healthcare industry would uh, agree with me in thanking you and the team for releasing these guidelines. They're a great help to many of us uh, who are working in this environment at this challenging time. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Todd, and, and stay safe to everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Links to the guidelines and to the Intubate COVID study can be found on our show notes. For more interviews just like this, please visit our website at osla.force.com.